Welcome. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. We are in a new teaching series in the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, you could grab it and open up to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of your row. Just look down the row, have somebody pass it down. And if you do have one of these Bibles that we provide, the page number is 588. 588, if you want to turn there with me. You could also Google 1 Peter, and we'll just assume if you're on your phone that you are reading the Bible. That's what we do here. So uh, excited about this series in a letter written by the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So he had firsthand knowledge of who Jesus was. He has firsthand eyewitness account of the resurrection. Um, He got to see parts of Jesus that even other disciples didn't. So Peter's a great person to turn to if you are just considering Jesus for the very first time. You go to the apostles, you look at what they have to say about this man who claimed to be God, who claimed to be giving his life as a sacrifice for all people and the forgiveness of sin, who uh, they claimed rose from the dead. So what does Peter say about Jesus? So if you're just considering who Jesus is, maybe for the first time or coming back to reconsider him, this is a great book for you. Look at what the apostles have to say about Jesus because they walked with him, they talked with him, and they saw saw him resurrected from the dead. Now, each of them's different. So each disciple uh, had a different personality, a different way of being. And uh, the thing about Peter that's so fun is that he is so American. He's the most American of all the apostles. Here's what I mean by that. He acts first and thinks second. That's who Peter is. Uh, He lives by... The mantra, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. He's quick to put his foot in his mouth. He does not mince words. And uh, he's a fast mover. He's a builder. And that's very American, isn't it? The gospel that, that he inspired is the gospel of Mark. So Mark was a close traveling companion with Peter, and we studied the book of Mark, and you can find all those sermons online. And if you remember, if, you'd, if you've been with us, um, that long, what you realize is that Mark's really punchy. Boom, boom, boom. There's no extra words, and that's inspired by Peter. Peter is a storyteller who doesn't slow down. He just keeps moving to get his point across. If you've read many of the letters from the Apostle Paul, you realize that's not Paul's gift. Paul's a bit more like me. He (laughs) takes a while to get through things, uh, explains himself several times over and over again, and uh, Peter's not like that. Now, why do I bring this up? This week, I saw something really interesting. The plan, when I plan out a preaching series, I, I, I go through a book and I outline it. This week we were supposed to be in verses 13 to 25. But as I was looking through the first chapter in the letter from Peter to the churches in Asia Minor, Minor which is modern day Turkey, what I realized is that this very American, fast moving, driving personality pauses and stops himself. Well, why would he do that? He would only do that if he realizes that there's something we need to just sit on for a second. And I see that in verses 10 through 12. It's an unnecessary logical advancement of his points throughout the book. But yet he stops and pauses and does waste words to bring something to our attention. So if Peter stops. If Peter pauses, we should all stop and pause. And so I adjusted 
my outline and I said, you know what? We need to sit in these verses that we preached last week a little bit longer. So the Lord worked on me this week and told me, hey, slow down. So we're going to reread some of the verses that we talked about last week, particularly focusing here in verses 10 through 12. So I'm excited. And what Peter will focus on in 10 through 12, what he wants us to bake in, is an understanding of just how fortunate we are to have heard about this Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that you're lucky? Do you consider yourself to be a lucky person? Just the other day, um, Allie told me this story. She was uh, laying with Grayson as he was about to go to bed, and, and they always have a nice chat. And uh, <laughs> Grayson tends to always talk about this one girl in his school, and I won't use her name just in case her family ever comes <laughs> to church, but he has a love-hate relationship with this uh, classmate, <laughs> and Grayson looks at Allie and says, hey mom, do you know how lucky you are that I'm your son? <laughs> <laughs> Saying, at least you didn't have a daughter like this, and, and, and Allie told me that story, I was like, that's so amazing. And the answer is, no, we don't always feel lucky, but we should. <laughs> so I'm thankful that Grayson reminded us. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. Hey, do you know just how lucky you are? When you wake up in the morning, what's your first thought? Most, most mornings, what's your first thought when you wake up? Coffee, please. Oh, God, another day? Do you say that? <laughs> Or do you say, i got to get going, I have so much to do today? Some of you might wake up and say, where, where am I? <laughs> I know I often wake up in the morning, especially in the winter, and say, why is it so dark in our city? What happened? Um, and many of you know this, I'm, I'm not a morning person. And according to the director of UC Berkeley's Center for Sleep Study, it's not my fault, it's genetic. Look it up. So in the mornings, I'm not always the best. Um, I'm not Mr. Sunshine. But this passage really convicted me. Because if the gospel is true, as Peter has declared the gospel in the passages we read last week, if I truly have a living hope, if my salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, then I am the luckiest son of a gun this side of the Mississippi. And so are you. You are so lucky that you've heard of this Jesus. That you've heard the good news about his life, death, his resurrection, and his ascension as he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If the gospel is true, then every morning I should roll out of bed feeling like the luckiest person alive. So why don't I act like that? Why don't I act as though I'm living a privileged existence? I know my Savior. I know His name. He knows my name. I have a relationship with Him. I know the deep future and what it holds. 
I know that no matter what happens today, what I accomplish or don't accomplish, what I do right, wrong, or otherwise, that it cannot change or ruin my future. So why don't I wake up every morning feeling so lucky? I don't know. Am I alone? Let's look at the text. Let's read what Peter has to say, what he reminds us of, and why he pauses to say, remember how lucky you are. So we're going to start in verse uh, 3, where we started last week, so we're just going to reread a little bit of what we read last week, and then we're going to move into these last two verses, 10 through 12. So here we go, starting in verse 3. Peter says this, blessed, and that could also be translated praise, be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now he could just move on and then he pauses. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that has or that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. What he's saying here is the prophets who predicted that the Messiah would come and his coming would include suffering. You can go look at Isaiah 52, 53 that the Messiah would come and suffer for the sins of the people. What, what he's saying is the prophets didn't know that person's name. The prophets didn't know who it would actually be, but you do. You actually know his name. His name is Jesus. You know where he's from, Nazareth. You know what he did and that he rose from the... You've seen things that the prophets could have longed to see, and you've had the privilege. You're the lucky ones. You know his name. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And look at this, this is amazing. These things that were preached to you, things into which angels long to look. Wow. You are more privileged than the prophet Isaiah. You are more privileged and the angels in heaven, the spiritual beings that hover around the throne of God and bring praise and glory and honor, you are more lucky than them because you know the name of Jesus, because you know what he did. Angels are jealous of you. Do you act like that? 
Now remember the context for all of this is they are being persecuted. Their lives are literally on the line because of their proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, their Lord, their Savior. Some of them are being burned at the stake by the emperor of Rome. And yet, Peter wants to remind them how lucky they are to know the things that they know. Wow. That's hard to be a follower of Jesus in this city, isn't it? Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're very lucky. Man, I wish I lived in another time, in another place, where it wasn't quite so hard. Nothing harder than what these first Christians were going through. And Peter says to them, you're the luckiest of the bunch. Don't forget that, Peter says. How privileged you are to have heard and seen the things that you've heard and seen. Now, let me review a little bit of last week. We talked about living hope versus dying hope. We said the hope that we get when we're born again, when we hear the gospel and God reveals to our eyes that it's true and we know, even though we have not seen Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die for our sin, that he did rise again on the third day to prove that his sacrifice was complete. When that happens and the eyes of our soul are illuminated, By the Spirit of God, we are born again, not to a hope that dies or fades with time, but a hope that lives and grows over time, and it's living because Jesus is living. It's living because the inheritance that he's promised to us is living, that we will have a new heaven and a new earth in which God is preparing land for us, living land that is land as it's supposed to be, that gives life and fruit in all the ways that it's supposed to, and we will work and enjoy that land together in this new living community with new heavenly bodies that are not perishable, that do not fade over time, that do not decay or deteriorate, that are undefiled, that sin does not touch them, and we will live with God forever. That is the promise. And that is a living hope. That was last week. Here's a great um, summary of that same living hope by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church in Corinth. Last week we looked at his first letter to the church in Corinth. I just want to read this in the second letter. I just want to show you this kind of talk is happening all over the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says this in 4, 16 through 18. He says, So do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see that living hope. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's a great summary of last week's sermon. So living hope is due ultimately, or tied ultimately, to our salvation. Our salvation. Our salvation from sin, our salvation from a fallen, decaying world. And that salvation is the outcome of what? Our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith. So in the passage that we just read, two words occur three times. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see a word repeated, it means it's probably important. And the two words are salvation and faith. Salvation and faith. 
And a right reading of all of Scripture understands that salvation is always tied to faith, not to works. You cannot work your way to salvation. Only by faith can you be saved. And that's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a very consistent testimony that it's faith and sal- that works towards salvation. And for the Christian, I just, I just want to remind us of this. As I was thinking about three, 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 lots of threes around, is there are three types of salvation that will happen in your life if you tie yourself to Jesus. The first kind. Well, let me say this um, about faith. Faith is the vehicle, the only vehicle, that can carry you to the destination that ultimately you long for, which is your eternal living hope. There's no other vehicle that can get you all the way. Some vehicles might make you think you're getting there. You can't pair up vehicles, hop in an Uber for half the ride, jump in a lift for the rest of it. You can't put together your heredity with good works and make it to your final destination. There's one vehicle that you can jump in that will get you there, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And there is three ways that this faith plays itself out into salvation. Past, present, and future. Past goes like this. You are saved. You were saved, which is to say you were justified in the sight of God, justified being a legal term, justified in the sight of God by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's something that happened in the past. It's done. When you turn and put your faith in Jesus, you were saved by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. So salvation past is secured now through your faith in the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. That's past. You are being saved by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So salvation present is secured now through faith in Christ's Spirit, which he has sent back to you. After the ascension, he said, I'm sending my Spirit to you so that you will be transformed and given power to live out your salvation here and now. So you were saved by the cross, you are being saved by Christ's Spirit working in you and through you, and you will be saved at the justice-making return of Jesus when he comes and remakes all things, but that will require judgment and justice. And in that day, you will be saved. So your salvation future is secured now through faith in God's plan for Christ's return and remaking of all things. Okay? So that's salvation. Paul, or Peter says that is the outcome of, of you living now with this living hope that in the end you will experience salvation So when your faith secures now in your soul past, present, future salvation that you have received and are receiving and will receive, you should feel like the luckiest person on the face of the earth. But but Dave, only thinking about my own salvation, isn't that a little vain? Isn't it kind of like gloating? 
when everyone else around me doesn't have that security. Right? It's a fair question. Is it wrong to desire salvation for myself? In C.S. Lewis's famous essay called The Weight of Glory, which is a reference to the passage I just read in 2 Corinthians, he talks about this very thing. And he thinks about it. And he wonders. Maybe we're thinking about it all wrong. If you've not read much of C.S. Lewis, I highly recommend on our resource page, um, on the Sedaris website, you can find a link. Uh, maybe you don't like to read. C.S. Lewis is pretty thick reading. Uh, they have, uh, we've got a link to a great YouTube channel called C.S. Lewis Doodles. You know what doodling is? <laughs> Where they've just taken all, or many of his works, and that's uh, like books on tape, but with doodles that helps you conceptualize what he's talking about. Highly recommend C.S. Lewis. But he helps us to think. And, and in this essay, he's, he's saying, I wonder if we're thinking rightly about the world. So I want to read you an extended passage from the beginning of this essay, The Weight of Glory. And I think we've got that up here, Augusta, if you want to put it up behind so people can follow along as well. C.S. Lewis says this. Do we have it up there, Augusta? It starts, if you asked 20 good men today. I w- the question is, should I do this in my British accent? Because it does sound so much better. Can I get into it, right? The question is, can I get into my British accent? I always have words that I say to help me get into an accent. I love accents. Teen crumpets, blackberry jam. Okay, <laughs> let's see if I can do it. If you ask 20 good men today, no, that's going to be distracting. And it's going to sound Australian by the end of it because I can't stick in it. So I'm going to read it in my English accent. If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament does have lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant, which is a German philosopher, I always blame the Germans, uh, from Kant and the Stoics, 
and is not part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider, great word, the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, that's Jesus, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. What do I want you to hear in this? It is not wrong but right for you to desire salvation. You are not selfish for wanting salvation, past, present, and future. And when you realize that by faith in Jesus Christ it is secured for you, you should not feel guilty. You should not feel shame. You you should feel like the luckiest person in the world. And indeed, We know that it is not luck at all, but it's God's love for us that has revealed this to us. It is not wrong to be loved by God. The only thing selfish about your desire for salvation is the means by which you go on securing it. It is selfish if you think you can have it without falling on your knees and trusting fully in Jesus. If you think that by your good deeds and your morality and your activism, you can secure eternal salvation when God has told you that you cannot, that is selfish. But simply receiving the good gift, which is grace, is not. More on C.S. Lewis in just a bit. But now let's turn back and look at some of the deeper meaning of what is offered to us in Christ. So I want to look at verse 7 together real quick. Verse 7, end of verse 6 actually, end of verse 6, end of verse 7 says this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials, so that the The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So so what is he saying? He's saying, listen, feeling like the luckiest person in the world doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. So when it's hard, here's what I want you to remember. That God is actually okaying, allowing, or even putting you into these trials so that something happens to your faith that actually ends in your praise, your glory, and your honor. Let me, let me explain. And this is often part of the confusing, this is the confusing part of God's divine wisdom that he would allow these trials in our life. Why would he do this for people that he loved? Well, Peter says, to test the genuineness of your faith. Yes, you're hearing that correctly. It's a constant witness of Scripture. 
God does not get off the hook just because the fall creates lots of trials. God could fix it at any moment. He could send Jesus back now. He could start putting it back together. But he waits and he allows for some purpose, which is to to test, Peter says, the genuineness of your faith. So if the trials of the life of your life help to expose what kind of faith you actually have, praise be to God. If the trials of your life help you see that maybe your faith is nominal in name only but has no substance, praise be to God because now I can reconsider this Jesus. Maybe the gospel is not what I thought it was and through the trial I'm actually brought to a true living faith. So, your trials will help you see that there are multiple kinds of faith in the world. That's what Peter says. Clearly, there's not just one type of faith. Other people will say that. James will say that. Paul will say that. So what is the other kind of faith? Well, we could call it circumstantial faith. That's the opposite of genuine faith. Circumstantial faith goes something like this. My faith is strong. I trust in God when I feel like the circumstances of my life are going in my favor. That's circumstantial faith. But as soon as the circumstances change, I no longer feel lucky. I feel cursed. And I begin to grumble. And I begin to turn on God. And I begin to question His goodness. And I begin to no longer radiate joy and light, but I radiate pessimism and cynicism. There's a chance, if that's you, you have circumstantial faith and not genuine faith. And it's the trials of your life that will draw that out. Praise be to God. There are two things I want to say. Hopefully it's encouraging for you to hear that. Because often we are embarrassed, are we not? By those who claim to have Christian faith. Because they don't seem to radiate the kind of love and joy and peace that we think Christians should. So I hope it's encouraging to hear that just because someone says they have faith in Jesus, it doesn't actually mean they have genuine faith. So you don't have to be embarrassed to call yourself a Christian just because other people who act very differently than you or think very differently than you that, that perpetuate you know, hate and division are also claiming to have Christian faith because Peter clearly says there's more than one kind of faith. So what should you do for those people? You should pray for them, that they would turn from circumstantial faith and turn to genuine faith. The second thing, if you find that it's true of your faith, that it ride or dies on the circumstances, you should reevaluate. You should ask yourself, do I really understand the gospel? And don't be embarrassed by that. Be thankful that you're having to question that so that you might find this genuine faith that Peter talks about. Now, that doesn't mean that genuine faith never stumbles, never struggles, never experiences fluctuation. It does. Mine does. It doesn't mean that you'll never feel anxious or you'll feel that your faith is fading or that you'll have doubts or confusion. All of that is a part of genuine faith. But at the bottom of the barrel, and the trials will illuminate this, at the bottom of the barrel is something actually more genuine than you even thought that you had. You see what I'm saying? This is true of my own story. 
that I would question, I would doubt. I'd have all sorts of, uh, of opposition to it. And it was the greatest trial in my life that exposed what was at the bottom of my barrel. And what, at the bo- what was at the bottom of my barrel was more genuine than anything I thought that I had. That might be your story. Praise be to God for the trials. Not that they reveal that you have circumstantial faith, but they reveal that your faith is actually more genuine than you believe it is right now. The foxholes of life might be the place that reveals the genuineness of your faith. And it might give you great assurance to know, no, I actually do believe. But when things are pretty good, sometimes you wonder, is my faith circumstantial because things are going well for me? So don't be afraid of the foxholes. You could say something like this. I hear people saying this all the time. I, I didn't know how genuine my faith was actually until the lab results came back. Until my romantic relationship ended. Until all my friends left me. Then I realized I do believe. The foxhole will reveal many things. And my guess is for many of you, it will reveal that you do believe in a way that you wonder right now. Even as I'm saying this, is my faith circumstantial? God will bring a trial in your life and it will reveal how much you truly believe. Praise be to God. Now here's an, here's a, an even more amazing promise. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what does that mean? Here's, when you study the grammar of it, here's what actually I think he's saying. It seems that Peter is saying that when you're in the foxhole, when you face the trial, when you're persecuted, attacked, ridiculed, downtrodden, mocked for your faith... Something amazing will happen if you let it happen. Not only will God protect you in the sense of just being with you, he will actually give you an extra measure of faith that you would not have if the trial hadn't come. So it's not just that he'll protect you through it or it will expose the genuineness of your faith, but actually your faith will increase. Because of the trial, he will give you in the moment everything you need to get through it. You heard that promise? This is an amazing promise. If you allow God to give you more faith in the moment of trial, your faith will actually grow up in a way that it couldn't. That's what it means by he's guarding you through faith. He's giving you actually more of a special supernatural kind of faith in the moment of trial. So you do not need to be afraid of trials. In fact, you might even be excited because you know God will give you something even more in that moment. Now, back to verse 7. Back to verse 7. And this all ties into the very end of verse 7 where it says, let me get that real quick. The end of verse 7 where it says, so having been tested you may be your faith and you may be found 
to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the first time I read that, I was just like, great, Jesus will get praise and glory and honor at his revelation because of the way that I acted in times of trial. Then I read it again, and I looked at the grammar, and what I realized was something. If your mind's not being blown over and over again, it should be. The promise is even greater than that. Here's what Peter is saying. That when you persevere through the hardest times of your life, and depending on where you're living, in what place, in some of the hardest seasons of time for Christians to live, that when you stand before the final judgment of Jesus Christ, something's going to happen. He is going to recount publicly before all the saints what you have endured, the faith that you have shown in the moment of trial. That will be made known, which is what glory means, will be revealed, will be noticed now by all. And it's not Jesus's glory, honor, and praise. It's yours. As you stand and Jesus says, remember that time? And you received the extra faith that I gave you? That's what Peter's talking about. (laughs) That in the end, you will get to stand before your Savior, your Maker, and your King, and He will make much of you because of how you persevered through the trial. Your faith and the genuineness of it will be unveiled. Who am I that Jesus would notice me and my meager faith? Who who am I? It's part of God's love for you that He wants to make much of you. Because you've made much of his son, Jesus. And in that day, as we stand before Jesus, what we realize is that our faith in the midst of trial has brought divine happiness to the Godhead. That he takes pleasure in us, just as we take pleasure in him. What a beautiful promise. So now let's reread, and this is why Peter stops. And says, hey, I just, you probably didn't catch it the first time. Just stop a sec and think about this. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ would come. Verse 12, but then it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced. To you, It has been preached, the good news, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things that angels long to look in. You have this knowledge. You have the fulfillment of all these promises. You know now who is the one who you'll stand in front of at the end of time, who will make much of you. You have this great gift this sweet joy, this amazing privilege of knowing this good news and these details about it. And yet, you fail to be seen by the city that you live as a lucky person. 
And I just wrestled with this. Of myself, why don't I just permeate luck? (laughs) Why aren't people looking at me saying, wow, did that guy win the lottery? Why not? And then C.S. Lewis's quote hit me again. That we've, this unfortunate truth that we have substituted a negative for a positive. That unselfishness has become our highest virtue rather than love. You see, to desire salvation and that heavenly inheritance and to desire to stand before Jesus and for him to heap praise and honor and glory on us, that's not selfish. That desire to be loved by your maker, that's not selfish. But I think to many of us it can seem selfish. To desire anything for ourselves can seem selfish because we think that to have it means that somebody else cannot. Do we wonder that if we found salvation, it means others cannot? You know, white guilt is a real thing. Is it not? It's a real, I mean, I experience it. What if what we're talking about here is gospel guilt? Are you feeling that because you've heard this message of salvation and found Jesus and others have not, that you should feel shame about that? That you should hide the fact that you found eternal life because it means that somebody else hasn't? That the God of the universe came in the flesh, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and lived the sinless life that we fail to live so that he could become the one and only perfect sacrificial lamb. And that he went willingly to the slaughter on Calvary's cross to die and take away the wrath of God that was due to make justice for the sins committed against God. And then God raised up this Jesus from the dead to prove that the sacrifice was complete, that he had accepted it, that our sins could be taken away forever and for good, and that we can participate in this rescue plan simply by hearing this news and supernaturally being changed. And that there's no other vehicle that can take us there, no heredity, No race, no ethnicity, no knowledge. That we can simply receive that good gift. Should I feel ashamed that I know that? That I've turned away from trying to save myself and turned to Jesus' salvation for me? Or should I be grateful beyond words. That's what Peter says. Inexpressible joy when I think about that somehow I know that truth. And should that joy be so unbridled that people cannot help but see me and wonder, what do you know that I don't know? You see, it seems to me that the only selfish thing in all of that is for me to keep this good news to myself. 
So if my greatest desire, or I believe the greatest virtue is to be unselfish, then what am I doing keeping this news to myself? Imagine with me just for a second, just to drive this point home, that you won the lottery today. As far as I could, could find, the largest lottery winner of all time was a gal named Mavis. <laughs> what a great name. And she got a check for $758 million. Now, what do you think would be the most virtuous thing that she could do with her new situation? A, use the money solely on, uh, for herself and her close family. That's option A. Option B, keep from the world and all those around her that she had won the lottery and pretend that her life had not changed in a significant way just so that all of her other friends would feel comfortable and would not become jealous of her. Or option C, use her good luck, her good fortune, her privilege to now bless and bring fortune and privilege and luckiness to all those around her. Not just those she's related to, but everyone within her sphere of influence. What will you do with your luck? I hope you see how lucky you are that you've heard this good news. I, I hope that you see that you have a privilege that many do not have to have heard the gospel and to know about this God who would go to such great ends to reunite you to him and his eternal kingdom. What will you do with that privileged knowledge and position that you now find yourself in? In an attempt to be tolerant and likable, will you keep your luck to yourself? In an attempt to be humble and unselfish, will you claim that actually you have no privilege at all? Or, in an attempt to understand your privilege, the privilege that God has given you, that God has loved you with, will you, will you look into these things that you have now heard and realize angels long to know what you know? And will you then speak your truth to the world? Will you speak your truth to power? Will you fight for change that only the fearless who know of this hope can fight for? And will you share your luck with others by telling them exactly where they can find the lottery ticket that wins every single time? That's on you. What will you do? Let's pray. Father God, why do we know this? Why have you chosen to reveal your plan for our good to us? Why do we sit in this room and hear of your gospel proclaimed in a language that we can understand, in forms that are accessible to us? We don't know. But we do know, when we see it clearly, that it is the greatest news. God, God help us wake up to just how lucky we are. Help us to wake up to our responsibility that comes with this privilege. Help us to wake up to how we 
can spread the fortune that we have gained in the gospel of Jesus Christ with our city, with our friends, with our co-workers. God, help us to wake up and start living with a joy that should come from this knowledge of your grace. God, wake us up. In Jesus' name, amen.